Flint the dwarf, Theros the blacksmith, Gilfinas and Lorana. It must be, Gumbar exclaimed. Then he frowned. But he never mentioned a magic user. Oh, that's because I'm dead, Fizban stated, propping his feet upon the table. Gunthar's eyes opened wide, but before he could reply, Wills came in, glaring at Tasselhoff. The retainer set mugs down on the table in front of his lordship. Three mugs. Here, my lord. And one on the mantle makes four. And there better be four when I come back. He walked out, shutting the door with a thud. I'll keep an eye on them, Tass promised solemnly. Do you have a problem with people stealing mugs? He asked Gunthar. I... No. Dead? Gunthar felt he was rapidly losing his grip on the situation. It's a long story, Fizban said, drowning the liquid in one swallow. He wiped the foam from his lips with the tip of his beard. Ah, excellent. Ah, where was I? Dead said Tass helpfully. Ah, yes, long story. T too long for now. Must get the orb. Where is it? Gunthar stood up angrily, intending to order this strange old man and this kinder from his chamber and his castle. He was going to call his guards to extract them, but instead he found himself caught by the old man's intense gaze. The knights of Salamnia have always feared magic, Though they had not taken part in the destruction of the Towers of High Sorcery, that would have been against the measure, they had not been sorry to see the magic users driven from Palanthus. Why do you want to know? Gunthar faltered, feeling a cold fear seep into his blood as he felt the old man's strange power engulf him. Slowly, reluctantly, Gunthar sat back down. Fizban's eyes glittered. I keep my own counsel, he said softly. Let it be enough for you to know that I have come seeking the orb. It was made by magic users long ago. I know of it. I know a great deal about it. Gunthar hesitated, wrestling with himself. After all, there were knights guarding the orb, and if this old man really did know something about it— what harm could there be in telling him where it was? Besides, he really didn't feel like he had any choice in the matter. Fizban absently picked up his empty mug again and started to drink. He peered inside mournfully as Gunthar answered. The dragon orb is with the gnomes. Fizban dropped his mug with a crash. It broke into a hundred pieces that went skittering across the wooden floor. There, what did I tell you? Tass said sadly, eyeing the shattered mug. The gnomes had lived in Mount Nevermind for as long as they could remember, and since they were the only ones who cared, they were the only ones who counted. Certainly they were there when the first knights arrived in San Crist, traveling from the newly created kingdom of Salamnia to build their keeps and fortress along the westernmost part of their border. Always suspicious of outsiders, the gnomes were alarmed to see a ship arriving upon their shores, bearing hordes of tall, stern-faced, warlike humans. 
Determined to keep what they considered a mountain paradise secret from the humans, the gnomes launched into action. Being the most technologically minded of the races on Kryn, they are noted for having invented the steam-powered engine and the coiled spring. The gnomes first thought of hiding within their mountain caverns, but then had a better idea. Hide the mountain itself. After several months of unending toil by their greatest mechanical geniuses, the gnomes were prepared. Their plan? They were going to make their mountain disappear. It was at this juncture that one of the members of the Gnomish Philosopher's Guild asked if it wasn't likely that the knights would have already noticed the mountain, the tallest on the island. Might not the sudden disappearance of the mountain create a certain amount of curiosity in the humans? This question threw the gnomes into turmoil. Days were spent in discussion. The question soon divided the philosopher gnomes into two factions, those who believed that if a tree fell in a forest and no one heard it, it still made a crashing sound, and those who believed it didn't. Just what this had to do with the original question was brought up on the seventh day but was promptly referred to committee. Meanwhile, the mechanical engineers, in a huff, decided to set off the device anyhow, and thus occurred the day that is still remembered in the annals of San Crist, when almost everything else was lost during the cataclysm, as the day of rotten eggs. On that day, an ancestor of Lord Gunthar woke up wondering sleepily if his son had fallen through the roof of the henhouse again. This had happened only a few weeks before. The boy had been chasing a rooster. You take him down to the pond, Gunthar's ancestor told his wife sleepily, rolling over in bed and drawing the covers up over his head. I can't, she said drowsily. The chimney's smoking. It was then that both fully woke up, realizing that the smoke filling the house was not coming from the chimney and that the ungodly odor was not coming from the henhouse. Along with every other resident of the new colony, the two rushed outside, choking and gagging with the smell that grew worse by the minute. They could see nothing, however. The land was covered with a thick, yellow smoke, redolent of eggs that had been sitting in the sun for three days. Within hours, everyone in the colony was deathly sick from the smell. Packing up blankets and clothes, they headed for the beaches, breathing the fresh, salt breezes, thankfully, they wondered if they could ever go back to their homes. While discussing this and watching anxiously to see if the yellow cloud on the horizon might lift, the colonists were considerably startled to see what appeared to be an army of short, brown creatures stagger out of the smoke to fall almost lifeless at their feet. The kindly people of Solamnia immediately went to the aid of the poor gnomes and thus did the two races of people living in San Crist meet. The meeting of the gnomes and the knights turned out to be a friendly one. The Salamnic people had a high regard for four things, individual honor, the code, the measure, and technology. They were vastly impressed with the labor-saving devices the gnomes had invented at this time, which included the pulley, the shaft, the screw, and the gear. It was during this first meeting that Mount Nevermind got its name as well. 
The knights soon discovered that while gnomes appeared to be related to the dwarves, being short and stocky, all similarity ended there. The gnomes were a skinny people with brown skin and pale white hair, highly nervous and hot-tempered. They spoke so rapidly that the knights at first thought they were speaking a foreign language. Instead, it turned out to be common, spoken at an accelerated pace. The reason for this became obvious when an elder made the mistake of asking the gnomes the name of their mountain. Roughly translated, it went something like this. A great, huge, tall mound made of several different strata of rock, of which we have identified granite, obsidian, quartz with traces of other rock we are still working on, that has its own internal heating system which we are studying in order to copy someday that heats the rock up to temperatures that convert it into both liquid and gaseous states which occasionally come to the surface and flow down the side of the great, huge, tall mound. Never mind, the elder said hastily. Never mind. The gnomes were impressed. To think that these humans could reduce something so gigantic and marvelous into something so simple was wonderful beyond belief. And so, the mountain was called Mount Nevermind from that day forth, to the vast relief of the gnomish mapmakers' guild. The knights on San Crist and the gnomes lived in harmony after that, the knights bringing the gnomes any questions of a technological nature that needed solving, the gnomes providing a steady flood of new inventions. When the dragon orb arrived, the knights needed to know how the thing worked. They gave it into the keeping of the gnomes, sending along two young knights to guard it. The thought that the orb might be magic did not occur to them. Chapter 5 Gnome Fingers Now, remember, no gnome living or dead ever in his life completed a sentence. The only way you get anywhere is to interrupt them. Don't worry about being rude, they expect it. The old mage himself was interrupted by the appearance of a gnome dressed in long brown robes, who came up to them and bowed respectfully. Tasselhoff studied the gnome with excited curiosity. The Kender had never seen a gnome before, although old legends concerning the Grey Gem of Gargath indicated that the two races were distantly connected. Certainly there was something Kenderish in the young gnome, his slender hands, eager expression, and sharp, bright eyes intent on observing everything. But here the resemblance ended. There was nothing of the Kender's easy-going manner. The gnome was nervous, serious, and businesslike. Tasseloff Burfoot, said the kender politely, extending his hand. The gnome took Tass's hand, peered at it intently, then, finding nothing of interest, shook it limply. And this... Tass started to introduce Fizban, but stopped when the gnome reached out and calmly took hold of the kender's hoopack. Ah! the gnome said, his eyes shining as he grasped the weapon. Send for a member of the Weapons Guild! The guard at the ground-level entrance to the Great Mountain did not wait for the gnome to finish. Reaching up, he pulled a lever and a shriek sounded. Certain that a dragon had landed behind him, Tass 
whirled around, ready to defend himself. Whistle, said Fizban. Better get used to it. Whistle? repeated Tass, intrigued. I never heard one like that before. Smoke comes out of it. How does it work? Hey, come back. Bring back my hoopack. He cried as his staff went speeding down the corridor, carried by three eager gnomes. Examination room, said the gnome. Upon Skimbush. What? Examination room, Fizban translated. I missed the rest. You really must speak slower, he said, shaking his staff at the gnome. The gnome nodded, but his bright eyes were fixed on Fizban's staff. Then, seeing it was just plain, slightly battered wood, the gnome returned his attention to the mage and Kender. Outsiders, he said. I'll try and remember. I will try and remember, so don't worry, because... He now spoke slowly and distinctly. Your weapon will not be harmed since we are merely going to render a drawing. Really? interrupted Tass, rather flattered. I could give you a demonstration of how it works if you like. The gnome's eyes brightened. That would be much. And now, interrupted the kender again, feeling pleased that he was learning to communicate. What is your name? Fizban made a quick gesture, but too late. Nasha shall a marion in an illisil fanit dis dislicix die. He paused to take a breath. Is that your name? Tass said, astounded. The gnome let out his breath. Yes, he snapped, a bit disconcerted. It's my first name. And now if you'll let me proceed. Wait, cried Fizban. What do your friends call you? The gnome sucked in a breath again. Nasha Shalamarianilis, what do the knights call you? Oh. The gnome seemed downcast. Nosh, if you... Thank you, snapped Fizban. Now, Nosh, we're in rather a hurry. War going on and all that. As Lord Gunthar stated in his communique, we must see this dragon orb. Nosh's small dark eyes glittered. His hands twisted nervously. Of course you may see the dragon orb, since Lord Gunthar has requested it. But if I might ask, what is your interest in the orb besides normal curia? I am a magic user, Fizban began. Magic user, the gnome stated, forgetting in his excitement to speak slowly. Come this way immediately to the examination room, since the dragon orb was made by the magic user. Both Tass and Fizban blinked uncomprehendingly. Oh, just come, the gnome said impatiently. Before they quite knew what was happening, the gnome, still talking, hustled them through the mountain's entrance, setting off an inordinate number of bells and whistles. Examination room? Tass said in an undertone to Fizban as they hurried after Nosh. What does that mean? They wouldn't have heard it, would they? I don't think so, Fizban muttered, his bushy, white eyebrows coming together in an ominous V-shape over his nose. Gunthar sent the knights to guard it, remember? Then what are you worried about? Tass asked. The dragon orbs are strange things, very powerful. My fear, said Fizban more to himself than Tass, is that they may try to use it. But the book I read in Tarsus said the orb could control dragons, Tass whispered. Isn't that good? I mean, the orbs aren't evil, are they? Evil? Oh, no, not evil. 
Fizban shook his head. That's the danger. They're not good. Not evil. They're not anything. Or perhaps I should say, they're everything. Tass saw he would probably never get a straight answer out of Fizban, whose mind was far away. In need of diversion, the kender turned his attention to their host. What does your name mean? he asked. Nosh smiled happily. In the beginning, the gods created the gnomes, and one of the first they created was named Nosh the First, and these are the notable events which occurred in his life. He married Marian Illis. Tass had a sinking feeling. Wait, he interrupted. How long is your name? It fills a book this big in the library, Nosh said proudly, holding his hands out. Because we are a very old family, as you will see, when I continue— That's all right, Tass said quickly, not watching where he was going. He stumbled over a rope. Nosh helped him to his feet. Looking up, Tass saw the rope led up into a nest of ropes, connected to each other, snaking out in all directions. He wondered where they led. Perhaps another time. But there are some very good parts, Nosh said as they walked toward a huge steel door, and I could skip to those if you like, such as the part where great-great-great-grandmother Nosh invented boiling water. I'd love to hear it, Tass gulped, but no time. Yes, I suppose so, Nosh said. And anyway, here we are at the entrance to the main chamber, so if you'll excuse me. Still talking, he reached up and pulled a cord. A whistle blew. Two bells and a gong rang out. Then, with a tremendous blast of steam that nearly parboiled all of them, two huge steel doors located in the interior of the mountain began to slide open. Almost immediately, the doors stuck and within minutes the place was swarming with gnomes yelling and pointing and arguing about whose fault it was. Tasselhoff Burfoot had been making plans in the back of his mind as to what he would do after this adventure had ended, and all the dragons were slain. The kender tried to maintain a positive outlook. The first thing he had planned to do was to go and spend a few months with his friend Seston, the gully dwarf in Pax Tharkas. The gully dwarves led interesting lives, and Tass knew he could settle there quite happily, as long as he didn't have to eat their cooking. But the moment Tass entered Mount Nevermind, he decided the first thing he would do was come back and live with the gnomes. The kender had never seen anything quite so wonderful in his entire life. He stopped dead in his tracks. Nosh glanced at him. Impressive, isn't it? he asked. Not quite the word I'd use, Fizban muttered. They stood in the central portion of the Gnome City, built within an old shaft of a volcano. It was hundreds of yards across and miles high. The city was constructed in levels around the shaft. Tass stared up. And up. And up. How many levels are there? The Kender asked, nearly falling over backward trying to see. Thirty-five and... Thirty-five! Tass repeated in awe. I'd hate to live on that thirty-fifth level. How many stairs do you have to climb? Nosh sniffed. Primitive devices we improved upon long ago, and now, he gestured, view some of the marvels of technology we have in operate. I can see, said Tass, lowering his eyes to ground level. You must be preparing for a great battle. 
I never saw so many catapults in my life. The Kender's voice died. Even as he watched, a whistle sounded, a catapult went off with a twang, and a gnome went sailing through the air. Tass wasn't looking at machines of war. He was looking at the devices that had replaced stairs. The bottom floor of the chamber was filled with catapults, every type of catapult ever conceived by gnomes. There were sling catapults, crossbow catapults, willow-sprung catapults, steam-driven catapults, still experimental. They were working on adjusting the water temperature. Surrounding the catapults, over the catapults, under the catapults, and through the catapults, were strung miles and miles of rope, which operated a crazed assortment of gears and wheels and pulleys, all turning and squeaking and cranking. Out of the floor, out of the machines themselves, and thrusting out from the sides of the walls, were huge levers, which scores of gnomes were either pushing or pulling, or sometimes both at once. I don't suppose, Fizban asked in a hopeless tone, that the examination room would be on the ground level? Nosh shook his head. Examination room on level fifteen, the old mage heaved a heart-rending sigh. Suddenly there was a horrible grinding sound that set Tass's teeth on edge. Ah, they're ready for us. Come along, Nosh said. Tass leaped after him gleefully as they approached a giant catapult. A gnome gestured at them irritably, pointing to a long line of gnomes waiting their turn. Tass jumped into the seat of the huge sling catapult, staring eagerly up into the shaft. Above him, he could see gnomes peering down at him from various balconies, all of them surrounded by great machines, whistles, ropes, and huge, shapeless things hanging from the sides of the wall like bats. Nosh stood beside him, scolding. Elders first, young man. So get out of there this instant and let— He dragged Tasselhoff out of the seat with remarkable strength. The magic user go first. Uh, that's quite all right. Fizban protested, stumbling backward into a pile of rope. I... I seem to recall a spell of mine that will take me right to the top. Levitate. How did that uh, go? Uh, just give me a moment. You were the one in a hurry, Nosh said severely, glaring at Fizban. The gnomes, standing in line, began to shout rudely, pushing and shoving and jostling. Oh, very well, the old mage snarled and climbed into the seat with Nosh's help. The gnome, operating the lever that launched the catapult, yelled something at Nosh which sounded like, Wallowl! Nosh pointed up, yelling back, Skimbosh! The chief walked over to stand in front of the first of a series of five levers, an inordinate number of ropes stretched upward into infinity. Fizban sat, miserably, in the seat of the catapult, still trying to recall his spell. Now! yelled Nosh, drawing Tass closer so he could have the advantage of an excellent view. In just a moment, the chief will give the signal. Yes, there it is. The chief pulled on one of the ropes. What does that do? Tass interrupted. The rope rings a bell on Skimbosh, uh, level fifteen, telling them to expect an arrival. What if the bell doesn't ring? Fizban demanded loudly. 
Then a second bell rings, telling them that the first bell didn't... What happens down here if the bell didn't ring? Nothing. It's Skimbush's problem, not yours. It's my problem if they don't know I'm coming, Fizban shouted. Or do I just drop in and surprise them? Ah, Nosh said proudly. You see, I'm getting out, stated Fizban. No, wait, Nosh said, talking faster and faster in his anguish. They're ready. Who's ready? Fizban demanded irritably. Skimbosh, with the net to catch you, you see. Net? Fizban turned pale. That does it. He flung a foot over the edge. But before he could move, the chief reached out and pulled on the first lever. The grinding sound started again as the catapult began pivoting in its mooring. The sudden motion threw Fizban back, knocking his hat over his eyes. What's happening? Tass shouted. They're getting him in position, Nosh yelled. The longitude and latitude have been pre-calculated and the catapult set to come into the correct location to send the passenger. What about the net? Tass yelled. The magician flies up to Skimbosh, oh, quite safely, I assure you. We've done studies, in fact, proving that flying is safer than walking. And just when he's at the height of his trajectory, beginning to drop a bit, Skimbosh throws a net out underneath him, catching him just like this. Nosh demonstrated with his hand, making a snapping motion like catching a fly, and hauls him in. What incredible timing that must take. The timing is ingenious, since it all depends on a certain hook we've developed, though... Nosh pursed his lips, his eyebrows drawing together. Something is throwing the timing off a bit, but there's a committee... The gnome pulled down on the lever, and Fizban, with a shriek, went sailing through the air. Oh, dear, said Nosh, staring. It appears... What? What? Tass yelled, trying to see. The net's open too soon again. Nosh shook his head. And that's the second time today that's happened on Skimbosh alone. And this definitely will be brought up at the next meeting of the Net Guild. Tass stared open-mouthed at the sight of Fizban whizzing through the air, propelled from below by the tremendous force of the catapult, and suddenly the Kender saw what Nosh was talking about. The net, on level fifteen, instead of opening after the mage had flown past and then catching him as he started to fall opened before the mage reached level fifteen. Fizban hit the net and was flattened like a squashed spider. For a moment, he hung there precariously, arms and legs akimbo. Then he fell. Instantly, bells and gongs rang out. Don't tell me, Tass guessed miserably. That's the alarm which means the net failed. Quite, but don't be alarmed, small joke. Nosh chuckled. Because the alarms trip a device to open the net on level 13 just in time. Whoops! A bit late. Well, there's still level 12. Do something! Tass shrieked. Don't get so worked up! Nosh said angrily. And I'll finish what I was about to say about the final emergency backup system, and that is... Oh, here it goes! Tass watched in amazement as the bottoms dropped out of six huge barrels hanging from the walls on level three, sending thousands of sponges tumbling down onto the floor in the center of the chamber. This was done, apparently, in case all the nets on every level failed. Fortunately, the net on level nine actually worked, spreading out beneath the mage just in time. Then it folded up around him and whisked him over to the balcony where the gnomes, hearing the mage cursing and swearing inside, 
appeared reluctant to let him out. So now everything's fine and it's your turn, said Nosh. Just one last question, Tass yelled at Nosh as he sat down in the seat. What happens if the emergency backup system with the sponges fails? Ingenious, said Nosh happily. Because you see, if the sponges come down a little too late, the alarm goes off, releasing a huge barrel of water into the center, and since the sponges are there already, it's easy to clean up the mess. The chief pulled the lever. Tass had been expecting all sorts of fascinating things in the examination room, but he found it, to his surprise, nearly empty. It was lighted by a hole drilled through the face of the mountain which admitted the sunlight. This simple but ingenious device had been suggested to the gnomes by a visiting dwarf who called it a window. The gnomes were quite proud of it. There were three tables but little else. On the central table, surrounded by gnomes, rested the dragon orb and his hoopack. It was back to its original size, Tass noted with interest. It looked the same, still a round piece of crystal with a kind of milky-colored mist swirling around inside. A young knight of Salamnia with an intensely bored expression on his face stood near the orb, guarding it. His bored expression changed sharply at the approach of the strangers. Quite all right, Nosh told the knight reassuringly. These are the two Lord Gunthar sent word about. Still talking, Nosh hustled them over to the central table. The gnome's eyes were bright as he regarded the orb. The dragon orb, he murmured happily, after all these years. But years, Fizban snapped, stopping at some distance from the table. You see, Nosh explained, each gnome has a life quest assigned to him at birth, and from then on his only ambition in life is to fulfill that life quest, and it was my life quest to study the dragon orb since... But the dragon orbs have been missing for hundreds of years, Tass said incredulously. No one knew about them. How could it be your life quest? Oh, we knew about them, Nosh answered, because it was my grandfather's life quest and then my father's life quest. Both of them died without ever seeing a dragon orb. I feared I might, too, but now finally one has appeared, and I can establish our family's place in the afterlife. You mean you can't get to the, um, afterlife until you complete the life quest? Tass asked. But your grandfather and your father... Probably most uncomfortable, Nosh said, looking sad. Wherever they are. My goodness! A remarkable change had come over the dragon orb. It began to swirl and shimmer with many different colors, as if in agitation. Muttering strange words, Fizban walked to the orb and set his hand upon it. Instantly, it went black. Fizban cast a glance around the room, his expression so severe and frightening that even Tass fell back before him. The knight sprang forward. Get out! the mage thundered. All of you! I was ordered not to leave, and I'm not— The knight reached for his sword, but Fizban whispered a few words. The knight slumped to the floor. The gnomes vanished from the room instantly, leaving only Nosh, wringing his hands, his face twisted in agony. Come on, Nosh, Tass urged. I've never seen him like this— we better do as he says. If we don't, he's liable to turn us into gully dwarfs or something icky like that. Whimpering, 
Nosh allowed Tass to lead him out of the room. As he stared back at the dragon orb, the door slammed shut. My life quest! The gnome moaned. I'm sure it will be all right, Tass said. Although he wasn't sure, not in the least. He hadn't liked the look on Fizban's face. In fact, it hadn't even seemed to be Fizban's face at all. Or anyone Tass wanted to know. Tass felt chilled, and there was a tight knot in the pit of his stomach. The gnomes muttered among themselves and cast baleful glances at him. Tass swallowed, trying to get a bitter taste out of his mouth. Then he drew Nosh to one side. Nosh, did you discover anything about the orb when you studied it? Tass asked in a low voice. Well, Nosh appeared thoughtful. I did find out that there's something inside of it, or seems to be, because I'd stare at it and stare at it without seeing anything for the longest time. Then, right when I was ready to quit, I'd see words swirling about in the mist. Words? Tass interrupted eagerly. What did they say? Nosh shook his head. I don't know, he said solemnly, because I couldn't read them. No one could, not even a member of the Foreign Language Guild. Magic, probably, Tass muttered to himself. Yes. Nosh said miserably, That's what I decided. The door blew open as if something had exploded. Nosh whirled around, terrified. Fizban stood in the doorway, holding a small black bag in one hand, his staff and Tasselhoff's hoopack in the other. Nosh sprang past him. The orb! He screeched, so upset he actually completed a sentence. You've got it! Yes, Nosh said Fizban. The mage's voice sounded tired, and Tass, looking at him closely, saw that he was on the verge of exhaustion. His skin was gray, his eyelids drooped. He leaned heavily on his staff. Come with me, my boy, he said to the gnome, and do not worry. Your life quest will be fulfilled, but now the orb must be taken before the Council of Whitestone. Come with you. Nosh repeated in astonishment. To the council? He clasped his hands together in excitement. Where perhaps I'll be asked to make a report, you think? I wouldn't doubt it in the least, Fizban answered. Right away. Just give me time to pack. Where are my papers? Nosh dashed off. Fizban whipped around to face the other gnomes who had been sneaking up behind him, reaching out eagerly for his staff. He scowled so alarmingly that they stumbled backward and vanished into the examination room. What did you find out? Tass asked, hesitantly approaching Fizban. The old mage seemed surrounded by darkness. The gnomes didn't do anything to it, did they? No, no, Fizban sighed. Fortunately for them, for it is still active and very powerful. Much will depend on the decisions a few make. Perhaps the fate of the world. What do you mean? Won't the council make the decisions? You don't understand, my boy, Fizban said gently. Stop a moment. I must rest. The mage sat down, leaning against a wall. Shaking his head, he continued. I concentrated my will on the orb, Tass. Oh, not to control dragons, he added, seeing the Kender's eyes widen. I looked into the future. What did you see?
Tass asked hesitantly, not certain from the mage's somber expression that he wanted to know. I saw two roads stretching before us. If we take the easiest, it will appear the best at the beginning. But darkness will fall at the end, never to be lifted. If we take the other road, it will be hard and difficult to travel. It could cost the lives of some we love, dear boy. Worse, it might cost others their very souls. But only through these great sacrifices will we find hope. Fizban closed his eyes. And this involves the orb? Tass asked, shivering. Yes. Do you know what must be done to, to take the d dark road? Tass dreaded the answer. I do, Fizban replied in a low voice. But the decisions have not been left in my hands. That will be up to others. I see, Tass sighed. Important people, I suppose. People like kings and elf lords and knights. Then Fizban's words echoed in his mind. The lives of some we love. Suddenly, a lump formed in Tass's throat, choking him. His head dropped into his hands. This adventure was turning out all wrong. Where was Tannis and dear old Caraman and pretty Tika? He had tried not to think about them, particularly after that dream. And Flint. I shouldn't have gone without him, Tass thought miserably. He might die. He might be dead right now. The lives of some you love. I never thought about any of us dying. Not really. I always figured that if we were together, we could beat anything. But now, we've gotten scattered somehow, and things are going all wrong. Tass felt Fizban's hand stroke his topknot, his one great vanity. And for the first time in his life, the Kender felt very lost and alone and frightened. The mage's grip tightened around him affectionately. Burying his face in Fizban's sleeve, Tass began to cry. Fizban patted him gently. Yes, the mage repeated. Important people. Chapter 6 The Council of Whitestone an important person. The Council of Whitestone met upon the twenty-eighth day of December, a day known as Famine Day in Solamnia, for it commemorated the suffering of the people during the first winter following the cataclysm. Lord Gunthar thought it fitting to hold the council meeting on this day, which was marked by fasting and meditation. It had been over a month, since the armies sailed for Palantas. The news Gunthar received from that city was not good. A report had arrived early on the morning of the 28th, in fact. Reading it twice over, he sighed, heavily, frowned, and tucked the paper into his belt. The Council of Whitestone had met once before within the recent past, 
a meeting precipitated by the arrival of the refugee elves in southern Ergoth and the appearance of the dragon armies in northern Salamnia. This council meeting was several months in the planning, and so all members, either seated or advisory, were represented. Seated members, those who could vote, included the Knights of Salamnia, the Gnomes, the Hill Dwarves, the dark-skinned, seafaring peoples of northern Ergoth, and a representative of the Salamnic exiles living on Sandcrist. Advisory members were the Elves, the Mountain Dwarves, and the Kender. These members were invited to express their opinions, but they could not vote. The first council meeting, however, had not gone well. Some of the old feuds and animosities between the races represented burst into flame. Armin Karras, representative of the Mountain Dwarves, and Duncan Hammerock of the Hill Dwarves, had to be physically restrained at one point, or blood from that ancient feud might have flowed again. Alhanna Starbreeze, representative of the Sylvanesti in her father's absence, refused to speak a word during the entire session. Alhanna had come only because Portheos of the Qualanesti was there. She feared an alliance between the Qualanesti and the humans, and was determined to prevent it. Alhanna need not have worried. Such was the distrust between humans and elves that they spoke to each other only out of politeness. Not even Lord Gunthar's impassioned speech, in which he had declared, Our unity begins peace, our division ends hope, made an impression. Portheos's answer to this had been to blame the dragon's reappearance on the humans. The humans, therefore, could extricate themselves from this disaster. Shortly after Portheos made his position clear, Alhano rose haughtily and left leaving no one with any doubts about the position of the Sylvanesti. The mountain dwarf, Armin Karas, had declared that his people would be willing to help, but that until the hammer of Karas was found, the mountain dwarves could not be united. No one knew at the time that the companions would soon return the hammer, so Gunthar was forced to discount the aid of the dwarves. The only person, in fact, who offered help was Cronin Thistlenot, chief of the Kender. Since the last thing any sane country wanted was the aid of an army of Kenders, this gesture was received with polite smiles, while the members exchanged horrified looks behind Cronin's back. The First Council disbanded, therefore, without accomplishing much of anything. Gunthar had higher hopes for this Second Council meeting. The discovery of the dragon orb, of course, put everything in a much brighter light. Representatives from both elven factions had arrived. These included the Speaker of the Suns, who brought with him a human claiming to be a cleric of Paladin. Gunthar had heard a great deal about Elistan from Sturm, and he looked forward to meeting him. Just who would represent the Sylvanesti? Gunthar wasn't certain. He assumed it was the Lord who had been declared regent following Alhanna Starbreeze's mysterious disappearance. The elves had arrived on Sandcrist two days ago. Their tents stood out in the fields, gaily colored silk flags fluttering in brilliant contrast to the gray, stormy sky. They were the only other race to attend. 
There had not been time to send a message to the mountain dwarves, and the hill dwarves were reported to be fighting for their lives against the dragon armies. No messenger could reach them. Gunthar hoped this meeting would unite the humans and the elves in the great fight to drive the dragon armies from Anselin, but his hopes were dashed before the meeting began. After scanning the report from the armies in Palanthas, Gunthar left his tent, preparing to make a final tour of the Glade of the White Stone, to see that everything was in order. Wills, his retainer, came dashing after him. My lord, the old man puffed, return immediately. What is it? Gunthar asked, but the old retainer was too much out of breath to reply. Sighing, the Salamnic lord went back to his tent where he found Lord Michael, dressed in full armor, pacing nervously. What's the matter? Gunthar said, his heart sinking as he saw the grave expression on the young lord's face. Michael advanced quickly, seizing Gunthar by the arm. My lord, we have received word that the elves will demand the return of the dragon orb. If we won't return it, they are prepared to go to war to recover it. What? Gunthar demanded incredulously. War? Against us? That's ludicrous. They can't... Are you certain? How reliable is this information? Very reliable, I'm afraid, Lord Gunther. My lord, I present Elistan, cleric of Paladine, Michael said. I beg your pardon for not introducing him earlier, but my mind has been in a turmoil since he first brought me this news. I have heard a great deal about you, sir, Lord Gunther said, extending his hand to the man. The knight's eyes studied Elistan curiously. Gunthar hardly knew what he had expected to see in a purported cleric of Paladine, perhaps a weak-eyed aesthetic, pale and lean from study. Gunthar was not prepared for this tall, well-built man who might have ridden to battle with the best of the knights. The ancient symbol of Paladine, a platinum medallion engraved with a dragon, hung about his neck. Gunthar reviewed all he had heard from Sturm concerning Elistan, including the cleric's intention to try and convince the elves to unite with the humans. Elistan smiled wearily, as if aware of every thought passing through Gunthar's mind. They were the thoughts. He answered. Yes, I have failed, Elistan admitted. It was all I could do to persuade them to attend the council meeting and they have come here only, I fear, to give you an ultimatum. Return the orb to the elves, or fight to retain it. Gunthar sank into a chair, gesturing weakly with his hand for the others to be seated. Before him, on a table, were spread maps of the lands of Anselin, showing in shades of darkness the insidious advance of the dragon armies. Gunthar's gaze rested on the maps, then suddenly he swept them to the floor. We might as well give up right now, he snarled. Send a message to the Dragon High Lords. Don't bother to come and wipe us out. We're managing quite nicely on our own. Angrily, he hurled on the table the message he had received. There, that's from Palanthus. The people have insisted the knights leave the city. The Palantheans are negotiating with the Dragon High Lords, and the presence of the Knights seriously compromises their position. They refuse to give us any aid, and so an army of a thousand Palantheans sits idle. What is Lord Derek doing, my lord? 
Michael asked. He and the knights and a thousand footmen, refugees from the occupied lands in Throgil, are fortifying the High Clarist's tower south of Palanthus, Gunthar said wearily. It guards the only pass through the Vingard Mountains. We'll protect Palanthus for a time, but if the dragon armies get through... He fell silent. Damn it! He whispered, beating his fist gently on the table. We could hold that pass with two thousand men, the fools! And now this! He waved his hand in the direction of the elven tents. Gunthar sighed, letting his head fall into his hands. Well, what do you counsel, cleric? Elistan was quiet for a moment before he answered. It is written in the discs of Mishikal that evil, by its very nature, will always turn in upon itself. Thus it becomes self-defeating. He laid his hand upon Gunthar's shoulder. I do not know what may come of this meeting. My gods have kept this secret from me. It could be they themselves do not know. But the future of the world stands in balance, and what we decide here will determine it. I do know this. Do not enter with defeat in your heart, for that will be the first victory of evil. So saying, Elistan rose and left the tent quietly. Gunthar sat in silence after the cleric had gone. It seemed that the whole world was silent, in fact, he thought. The wind had died during the night. The storm clouds hung low and heavy, muffling sound so that even the clarion trumpet's call, marking day's dawning, seemed flat. A rustling broke his concentration. Michael was slowly gathering up the spilled maps. Gunthar raised his head, rubbing his eyes. What do you think? Of what, the elves? That cleric, Gunthar said, staring out the tent opening. Certainly not what I would have expected, Michael answered, his gaze following Gunthar's. More like the stories we have heard of the clerics of old, the ones that guided the knights in the days before the cataclysm. He's not much like these charlatans we've got now. Elistan is a man who would stand beside you on the field of battle, calling down Paladin's blessing with one hand while wielding his mace with the other. He wears the medallion that none have seen since the gods abandoned us. But is he a true cleric? Michael shrugged. It will take a lot more than a medallion to convince me. I agree. Gunthar rose to his feet and began to walk toward the tent flap. Well, it is nearly time. Stay here, Michael, in case any more reports come in. Starting to leave, he paused at the entrance to the tent. How odd it is, Michael, he murmured, his eyes following Elistan, now no more than a speck of white in the distance. We have always been a people who looked to the gods for our hope, a people of faith who distrusted magic. Yet now we look to magic for that hope, and when a chance comes to renew our faith, we question it. Lord Michael made no answer. Gunthar shook his head and, still pondering, made his way to the glade of Whitestone.
As Gunthar said, the Solamnic people had always been faithful followers of the gods. Long ago, in the days before the cataclysm, the glade of the white stone had been one of the holy centers of worship. The phenomenon of the white rock had attracted the attention of the curious longer than anyone remembered. The king-priest of Istar himself had blessed the huge white rock that sat in the middle of a perpetually green glade, declaring it sacred to the gods and forbidding any mortal to touch it. Even after the cataclysm, when belief in the old gods died, the glade remained a sacred place. Perhaps that was because not even the cataclysm had affected it. Legend held that when the fiery mountain fell from the sky, the ground around the white stone cracked and split apart, but the white stone remained intact. So awesome was the sight of the huge white rock that even now none dared either approach or touch it. What strange powers it possessed, none could say. All they knew was that the air around the white stone was always spring-like and warm, no matter how bitter the winter, the grass in white stone glade was always green. Though his heart was heavy, Gunthar relaxed as he stepped inside the glade and breathed the warm, sweet air. For a moment he felt once again the touch of Elistan's hand upon his shoulder, imparting a feeling of inner peace. Glancing around quickly, he saw all in readiness. Massive wooden chairs with ornately carved backs had been placed on the green grass. Five for the voting members of the council stood to the left side of the white stone, three for the advisory members stood on the right. Polished benches for the witnesses to the proceedings as demanded by the measure sat facing the white stone and the council members. Some of the witnesses had already begun arriving, Gunthar noticed. Most of the elven party traveling with the speaker and the Sylvanesti lord were taking their seats. The two estranged elven races sat near each other apart from the humans who were filing in as well. Everyone sat quietly, some in remembrance of Famine Day, others, like the gnomes who did not celebrate that holiday, in awe of their surroundings. Seats in the front row were reserved for honored guests or for those with leave to speak before the council. Gunthar saw the speaker's stern-faced son, Portheos, enter with a retinue of elven warriors. They took their seats in the front. Gunthar wondered where Elistan was. He'd intended to ask him to speak. He had been impressed with the man's words, even if he was a charlatan, and hoped he would repeat them. As he searched in vain for Elistan, he saw three strange figures enter and seat themselves in the front row. It was the old mage in his bent and shapeless hat, his kender friend, and a gnome they had brought back with them from Mount Nevermind. The three had arrived back from their journey only last night. Gunthar was forced to turn his attention back to the White Stone. The advisory council members were entering. There were only two, Lord Quinath of the Sylvanesti and the Speaker of the Sons. Gunthar looked at the Speaker curiously, knowing he was one of the few beings on Kryn to still remember the horrors of the cataclysm. The Speaker was so stooped that he seemed almost crippled. His hair was gray, his face haggard 
But as he took his seat and turned his gaze to the witnesses, Gunthar saw the elf's eyes were bright and arresting. Lord Quinath, seated next to him, was known to Gunthar, who considered him as arrogant and proud as Portheos of the Qualinasti, but lacking in the intelligence Portheos possessed. As for Portheos, Gunthar thought he could probably come to like the speaker's eldest son quite well. Portheos had every characteristic the knight admired, with one exception. His quick temper. Gunthar's observations were interrupted, for now it was time for the voting council members to enter, and Gunthar had to take his place. First came Mir Carthon of Northern Ergoth, a dark-complexioned man with iron-gray hair and the arms of a giant. Next came Serdan Marthasel, representing the exiles on Sandchrist. And finally, Lord Gunthar, Knight of Solamnia. Once seated, Gunthar glanced around a final time. The huge white stone glistened behind him, casting its own strange radiance, for the sun would not shine today. On the other side of the white stone sat the speaker, next to him, Lord Quinath. Across from them, facing the council, sat the witnesses upon their benches. The kender was sitting, subdued, swinging his short legs on his tall bench. The gnome shuffled through what looked like a ream of paper. Gunthar shuddered, wishing there'd been time to ask for a condensed report. The old magician yawned and scratched his head, peering around, vaguely. All was ready. At Gunthar's signal, two knights entered, bearing a golden stand and a wooden chest. A silence that was almost deathlike descended on the crowd as they watched the entrance of the dragon orb. The knights came to a halt, standing directly in front of the white stone. Here, one of the knights placed the golden stand upon the ground. The other knight set down the chest, unlocked it, and carefully brought forth the orb that was back to its original size, over two feet in diameter. A murmur went through the crowd. The speaker of the suns shifted uncomfortably, scowling. His son Portheos turned to say something to an elf lord near him. All of the elves, Gunthar noted, were armed. Not a good sign, from what little he knew of elven protocol. He had no choice but to proceed. Calling the meeting to order, Lord Gunthar Uthwistan announced, Let the Council of Whitestone begin. After about two minutes, it was obvious to Tasselhoff that things were in a real mess, before Lord Gunthar had even concluded his speech of welcome, the Speaker of the Sons rose. My talk will be brief. The elven leader stated in a voice that matched the steely gray of the storm clouds above him. The Sylvanaste, the Qualinaste, and the Kaganaste met in council shortly after the orb was removed from our camp, it is the first time the members of the three communities have met since the Kinslayer Wars. He paused, laying a heavy emphasis on those last words. Then he continued. We have decided to set aside our own differences in our perfect agreement that the dragon orb belongs in the hands of the elves, not in the hands of humans or any other race upon Kryn. Therefore, 
We come before the Council of Whitestone, and ask that the dragon orb be given over to us forthwith. In return, we guarantee that we will take it to our lands and keep it safe until such time, if ever, it be needed. The speaker sat down, his dark eyes sweeping over the crowd, its silence broken now by a murmur of soft voices. The other council members sitting next to Lord Gunthar shook their heads, their faces grim. The dark-skinned leader of the northern Ergoth people whispered to Lord Gunthar in a harsh voice, clenching his fist to emphasize his words. Lord Gunthar, after listening and nodding for several minutes, rose to his feet to respond. His speech was cool, calm, complimentary to the elves, but it said, between the lines, that the knights would see the elves in the abyss before they gave them the dragon orb. The speaker, understanding perfectly the message of steel couched in the pretty phrases, rose to reply. He spoke only one sentence, but it brought the crowd of witnesses to their feet. Then, Lord Gunthar, the speaker said, the elves declare that from this time on, we are at war. Humans and elves both headed for the dragon orb that sat upon its golden stand, its milky white insides swirling gently within the crystal. Gunthar shouted for order time and again, banging the hilt of his sword upon the table. The speaker spoke a few words sharply in elven, staring hard at his son, Portheos, and finally order was restored. But the atmosphere snapped like the air before a storm. Gunthar talked, the speaker answered. The speaker talked, Gunthar answered. The dark-skinned mariner lost his temper and made a few cutting remarks about elves. The lord of the Sylvanasty reduced him to quivering anger with his sarcastic rejoinders. Several of the knights left, only to return armed to the teeth. They came to stand near Gunthar, their hands on their weapons. The elves, led by Portheos, rose to surround their own leaders. Nosh, his report held fast in his hand, began to realize he wasn't going to be asked to give it. Tasselhoff looked around despairingly for Elistan. He kept hoping, desperately, the cleric would come. Elistan would calm these people down, or maybe Lorana, where was she? There'd been no word of his friends. The elves had told the kinder coldly. She and her brother had apparently vanished in the wilderness. I shouldn't have left them, Tass thought. I shouldn't be here. Why, why did this crazy old mage bring me? I'm useless. Maybe Fizban could do something. Tass looked at the mage, hopefully. But Fizban was sound asleep. Please wake up, Tass begged, shaking him. Somebody's got to do something. At that moment, he heard Lord Gunthar yell, The dragon orb is not yours by right. Lady Lorana and the others were bringing it to us when they were shipwrecked. You tried to keep it on Ergoth by force, and your own daughter... Mention not my daughter, the speaker said in a deep, harsh voice. I do not have a daughter. Something broke within Tasselhoff. Confused memories of Lorana fighting desperately against the evil wizard who guarded the orb 
Lorana battling draconians, Lorana firing her bow at the white dragon, Lorana ministering to him so tenderly when he'd been near death. To be cast off by her own people when she was working so desperately to save them, when she had sacrificed so much. Stop this! Tasselhoff heard himself yelling at the top of his voice, Stop this right now and listen to me! Suddenly he saw, to his astonishment, that everyone had stopped talking and was staring at him. Now that he had his audience, Tass realized he didn't have any idea what to say to all of these important people, but he knew he had to say something. After all, he thought, this is my fault. I read about these damn orbs. Gulping, he slid off his bench and walked toward the white stone, and the two hostile groups clustered around it. He thought he saw, out of the corner of his eye, Fizban grinning from under his hat. I... I... The kender stammered, wondering what to say. He was saved by a sudden inspiration. I demand the right to represent my people, Tasselhoff said proudly, and take my place on the advisory council. Flipping his tassel of brown hair over his shoulder, the kender came to stand right in front of the dragon orb. Looking up, he could see the white stone towering over it, and over him. Tass stared at the stone, shivering, then quickly turned his gaze from the rock to Gunthar and the Speaker of the Suns. Then Tasselhoff knew what he had to do. He began to shake with fear. He, Tasselhoff Burfoot, who'd never been afraid of anything in his life, He'd faced dragons without trembling, but the knowledge of what he was going to do now appalled him. His hands felt as if he'd been making snowballs without gloves on. His tongue seemed to belong in some larger person's mouth, but Tass was resolute. He just had to keep them talking, keep them from guessing what he planned. You've never taken us Kenders very seriously, you know. Tass began, his voice sounding too loud and shrill in his own ears, and I can't say I blame you much. We don't have a strong sense of responsibility, I guess, and we are probably too curious for our own good. But I ask you, how are you going to find out anything if you're not curious? Tass could see the speaker's face turn to steel. Even Lord Gunthar was scowling. The kender edged nearer the dragon orb. We cause lots of trouble, I suppose, without meaning to, and occasionally some of us do happen to acquire certain things which aren't ours. But one thing the Kender know is... Tasselhoff broke into a run, quick and lithe as a mouse. He slipped easily through the hands that tried to catch him, reaching the dragon orb within a matter of seconds. Faces blurred around him, mouths opened, shrieking and yelling at him, but they were too late. In one swift movement, Tasselhoff hurled the dragon orb at the huge, gleaming white stone. The round, gleaming crystal, its insides swirling in agitation, hung suspended in the air for long, long seconds. Tass wondered if the orb had the power to halt its flight, but it was just a fevered impression in the Kender's mind. The dragon orb struck the rock and shattered, 
bursting into a thousand sparkling pieces. For an instant, a ball of milky white smoke hung in the air as if trying desperately to hold itself together. Then the warm spring-like breeze of the glade caught it and swept it apart. There was intense, awful silence. The kender stood, looking calmly down at the shattered dragon orb. We know, he said in a small voice that dropped into the dreadful silence like a tiny drop of rain. We should be fighting dragons, not each other. No one moved. No one spoke. There was a thump. Nosh had fainted. The silence broke, almost as shattering as the breaking of the orb. Lord Gunthar and the speaker both lunged at Tass. One caught hold of the Kender's left shoulder, one his right. What have you done? Lord Gunthar's face was livid, his eyes wild as he gripped the Kender with trembling hands. You have brought death upon us all! The speaker's fingers bit into Tass's flesh like the claws of a predatory bird. You have destroyed our only hope! And for that, he himself will be the first to die! Portheos, tall, grim-faced elf-lord, loomed above the cowering Kender, his sword glistening in his hand. The Kender stood his ground between the elven king and the knight, his small face pale, his expression defiant. He had known when he committed his crime that death would be the penalty. Tanis will be unhappy over what I've done, Tass thought sadly, but at least he'll hear that I died bravely. No, 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 said a sleepy voice. No one's going to die. At least not at this moment. Quit waving that sword around, Portheos. Someone'll get hurt. Tass peered out from under a heaving sea of arms and shining armor to see Fizban, yawning, step over the inert body of the gnome and totter toward them. Elves and humans made way for him to pass, as if compelled to do so by an unseen force. Portheos whirled to face Fizban, so angry that saliva bubbled on his lip and his speech was nearly incoherent. Beware, old man, or you will share in the punishment. I said quit waving that sword around. Fizban snapped irritably, wiggling a finger at the sword. Portheos dropped his weapon with a wild cry, clutching his stinging, burning hand. He stared down at the sword in astonishment. The hilt had grown thorns. Fizban came to stand next to the elf lord and regarded him angrily. You're a fine young man, but you should have been taught some respect for your elders. I said to put that sword down. And I meant it. Maybe you'll believe me next time. Fizban's baleful gaze switched to the speaker. And you, Solostarin, were a good man about two hundred years ago. Managed to raise three fine children. Three fine children, I said. Don't give me any of this nonsense about not having a daughter. You have one, and a fine girl she is. More sense than her father. Must take after her mother's side. There was a... Oh, yes, 
You brought up Tannis half-elven, too. You know, Solastaran, between the four of these young people, we might save this world yet. Now, I want everyone to take his seat. Yes, you too, Lord Gunther. Come along, Solastaran, I'll help. We old men have to stick together. Too bad you're such a damn fool. Muttering into his beard, Fizban led the astounded speaker to his chair. Portheos, his face twisted in pain, stumbled back to his seat with the help of his warriors. Slowly, the assembled elves and knights sat down, murmuring among themselves, all casting dark looks at the shattered dragon orb that lay beneath the white stone. Fizban settled the speaker into his seat, glowered at Lord Quinath, who thought he had something to say, but quickly decided he didn't. Satisfied, the old mage came back to the front of the white stone where Tass stood, shaken and confused. You? Fizban looked at the kender as if he'd never seen him before. Go and attend that poor chap. He waved a hand at the gnome who was still out cold. Feeling his knees tremble, Tasselhoff walked slowly over to Nosh and knelt down beside him, glad to look at something other than the angry, fear-filled faces. Nosh? He whispered, miserably, patting the gnome on the cheek. I'm sorry. I truly am. I mean about your life quest and your father's soul and everything, but there just didn't seem to be anything else to do. Fizban turned around slowly and faced the assembled group, pushing his hat back on his head. Yes, I'm going to lecture you. You deserve it, every one of you, so don't sit there looking self-righteous. That kinder, he pointed at Tasselhoff, who cringed, has more brains beneath that ridiculous top knot of his than a lot of you have put together. Do you know what would have happened to you if the Kender hadn't had the guts to do what he did, do you? Well, I'll tell you. Just let me find a seat here. Fizban peered around vaguely. Ah, yes, there. Nodding in satisfaction, the old mage toddled over and sat on the ground, leaning his back against the sacred white stone. The assembled knights gasped in horror. Gunthar leaped to his feet, appalled at this sacrilege. No mortal can touch the white stone, he yelled, striding forward. Fizban slowly turned his head to regard the furious knight. One more word, the old mage said solemnly, and I'll make your mustaches fall off. Now sit down and shut up. Sputtering. Gunthar was brought up short by an imperious gesture from the old man. The knight could do nothing but return to his seat.